really do. You're a 21 year old punk fucking kid. This grandpa's given you everything all your fucking life. You've never had a car payment, a house payment. Everything you live in was given to you by grandpa. You fucking don't know what it's like to work for a fucking living like I do. To bust my fucking ass and do what I do. And you know what, Sean? You fucked me, and that's the way you got it. But you know what? Your grandpa's money will run out someday, and you'll have to feast for yourself. Get a fucking jog, you piece of shit. Welcome to Behind the Smoke Podcast, Barbecue War Stories. My name is Sean Walchef from Cali Comfort Barbecue. I'm here with Derek Marceau from Valley Farm Market, and we are recording above the butcher shop in East County, San Diego. We started this uh, podcast to talk about business, to talk about marketing, to uh, to go behind the smoke and let people in on what it's like to uh, really own a business and what it's like to fail, um, what it's like to succeed and bring people on like Jim we Trotter. Pretty, we failed pretty good. We failed, we failed really good. Yeah. When you listen to voicemails like that, um, that's where I, you learn though. I think we should, I think oh, we should start recording, um, the facial expressions from people that, <laughs> that first listen to that voicemail. Uh, as Ernie Hahn put it, you don't, you don't need Red Bull. You just need that voicemail and you're good to go. So yeah, it gets you pumped up. Uh, Jim, God, Trot- give him a Snickers. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Jim Trotter from ESPN. Uh, we are so honored to have you here. NFL insider, Hall of Fame voter for those of you in San Diego, Chargers beat writer for many, many years, uh, worked as SI, uh, worked for Sports Illustrated magazine. Uh, he got laid off from Sports Illustrated magazine, which we're going to dig into, um, especially with all the ESPN layoffs that are going on. But just uh, somebody that we're so fortunate to call a close friend. Uh, if it wasn't for Twitter, we wouldn't be friends. Uh, there was a time when Jim uh, went on to promote his book about Junior Seau, the life and death um, of a football icon. And uh, it's an incredible book. He was on the Jeff, Dave and Jeff show with CS Keys promoting his book, reminiscing about times um, that he became really good friends with Junior and how they used to go out to enjoy their time over at Seau's restaurant in Mission Valley and um, how fight night was pretty special to them. I sent out a tweet. Uh, to Jeff and to Jim and said, hey, if you guys are ever in need of a table on fight night, come out to Cali Comfort. And sure enough, here we are uh, three years later. I've been harassing Jim to help me with the San Diego Love Letter Challenge to try to keep the Chargers <laughs> in town, uh, harassing him to help me with uh, my entrance into Pro Football Ultimate Fan Association. And despite all that harassment, <laughs> no harassment. Jim, Jim keeps coming back for tri-tips. So yes, sir. Uh, welcome to Behind the Smoke, Jim. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today. No, I'm glad to be here. It's finally, uh, I was waiting to see when I was going to get a chance to get, to get in the chair. So. You've always been invited. We just didn't have the date yet. I got you. Yeah. yeah I'm that, with that. Yeah, that's part of the deal. One of the coolest things for Derek and I is, uh, you know, we are in the barbecue business. Uh, Derek as a specialty butcher shop, uh, third generation butcher and me owning a restaurant and uh, catering business. Uh, we've been putting on amateur barbecue events, professional barbecue events, but sports entertainment is something that uh, is near and dear to our heart. Um, Derek and I both learned a lot through what we learned on the football field, what we learned on the basketball court. It's um, crazy. Just from our coaching. I mean, you really think about it. The life lessons you learn at a young age that you don't even know that you're learning is, is uh, you can't buy that shit. Well, I think that that's how you and I became such close friends. Is you know we we started raising money for the Spring Valley Youth Amateur kids. Barbecue yeah. contests, so kids could have pads to play football. They couldn't. Know? They couldn't afford to buy uh, gear, so we figured out a way to make that happen for them. Absolutely. Um, that's just so sad about. Um, 
I don't want to say this country today, but just the times today. You know, when you think about the things we got to do growing up that you didn't have to pay for, um, you know, when I, I remember when I played youth football, it didn't cost anything like what it costs now. And, yeah. and to think about the kids who are being excluded because they can't afford it today or, or something along those lines. It's one of those things where, to me, you're, you're so short-sighted, you don't see the downside later in life and how that's going to impact just society. Um, but we've taken away so many things from kids today that when I was growing up that you had, whether it was, you know, the arts, um, whether it was uh, music in school. When I was in school, in middle school, we had like a home ec class or we had a wood shop class sure. for those who yeah. might not have wanted to go to college. And all these things are being taken away from kids today. And then we wonder why we have some of the issues that we have. So yeah. props to you guys for for doing what you did. Yeah, they always say there's no funding. You know, there's no yeah, more funding for exactly. one shopper or um, auto. We had um, an auto class and, mm-hmm. oh, we can't do it anymore. There's no funding. Like, well, who was funding it and what's going on? Right. How do we raise money? Sean and I, one of our biggest things was that we don't want to just hand out money. We want to teach lessons. So yeah. if we can put something on the people that we're giving money to, they get involved, the charities, everyone. So they're learning that you don't just ask for money. You have to work for it, come experience the whole thing. And then, you know, you get rewarded. Um, that's, that's important for us to, to teach those lessons and then be able to give the, that money to them. Like you guys earned this. Mm-hmm. This isn't just given to you. You guys earned it, um, to, to fund all those things, like you said, that are, are going to the wayside. It's, um, it's unfortunate. Yeah. So Jim, let's yes, talk. Sir. Let's talk about your your career in journalism because Ooh. I don't think there's any better person to talk to that's come <clears throat> from the newspaper world to the magazine world to the television world um, and the world of sports to be in 2017 covering the NFL, covering all these issues through Twitter, through Snapchat. I mean, we just saw from Los Angeles uh, Times reported that Sports Center is going to be featuring their own Snapchat channel, um, trying to collect catch that millennial market, that Gen X market. Um, we live in a crazy world and you've kind of seen, I mean, you, you yourself used to be a writer, but you're not a clickbait writer. Is no, that correct? No, God, no. Um, <laughs> man, I don't even know how to respond to that. I would hope that no, <laughs> I would hope there is no one out there who would ever think I was that. Correct. Um, it's, it's, um, you know, but I'll say this about that, about clickbait. Um, we get a lot of pushback from the public about some of the things that we we feature, so to speak, whether I remember during the Tim Tebow time or now or the Johnny Manziel time or this, that, and the other. And people, why do you guys keep writing about this guy or why do you keep showing this? And the reality is because people keep clicking on it or people keep watching the viewership numbers you see spike when these individuals were on. So I always say to the public, you know, as much as you want to get mad at us, um, <laughs> you're complicit in this because if you weren't clicking on it and you weren't watching it, we wouldn't be putting it up as often as we do. Right. Sure. I mean, it's crazy to think, I mean, you know, growing up watching sports center, you know, go from where, from what it was to what it is now. Um, it's just been it's it's been an incredible thing to watch, you know, as a consumer, you know, as somebody that, you know, absolutely loves sports and loves athleticism and loves watching the story, you know, the story and also the story behind the story. You know, sure. for us, you know, we're so fascinated with business, with stadiums, with how to create an experience, how to make, you know, that 
NFL experience? How do you make it better? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a huge challenge that the NFL is fa- fa- facing right now. You know, especially with relocation. I mean, something that you've covered with the San Diego Chargers. I mean, in 2013, you wrote a piece condemning the Qualcomm Stadium oh. for SI. Thing was, like I said, <laughs> that, that place was an insult to dumps. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was pathetic. Totally. And and the Oakland Coliseum is just as bad. So it was clear why those two franchises needed a new stadium. The issue became who should pay for it. But just speaking about the venues themselves, um, setting aside all of the other stuff, they were both dumps and they were falling apart. And um, in today's age, you're not going to compete. You know, and, and if you have facilities like that. So um, I, remember, I remember when I was walking through Qual- Qualcomm, getting sort of a tour of it before I did that column. And you see where the, the cement is falling <laughs> off, where you look up at the Jumbotron <laughs> and they tell you they have to get replacement parts on eBay because nobody makes them <laughs> makes anymore. It so, you know, or the fact that you can't, can, you, there are certain pockets in it where you can't get Wi-Fi just because of the way it's constructed and whatnot. And. And then you say that, that, you know, anyone who, any franchise that's in the building like that is supposed to be able to compete financially with, with, you know, its competition around the league. It just doesn't work. But again, I'm saying all of that to say I'm setting aside all the other things about who should pay for it and all sure. of that. I'm just talking about the building itself. And that place is, um, is a dump. How, how do you remove yourself? when you're dealing with a controversial topic like stadium relocation, how do you focus on the facts and try to, you know, how did you get to where you are, where a piece like this still resonates today? I mean, the things that you said in 2013 about Qualcomm are still true to this day in 2017. Well, the thing about that piece was it was a column. So I could, I could give my opinion on things um, uh, more so than, than just presenting the straight facts so for that one, that one was easy, um, especially living here in San Diego and having spent so much time in that stadium. Uh, it was, it, it, I don't know, I think I did that column. It didn't take very long. There are some that you write and it takes you all day to write, and there are some that you sit down and you're done in less than an hour or so. And that was one of those that was very easy to write. Easy to write because of your time with the Chargers as a beat reporter? Just having spent time in that building. You know, having experienced it, It, it's like when I was writing the book on Junior, it didn't require as much reporting because a number of the things I had lived through, I had been there, I'd seen it, Um, as opposed to never having met the man or never having, you know, or or in the case of Qualcomm, never having walked in that stadium or walking into it for the first time. You know, I've been there when it rains and the sewage backs up and you're literally walking through shit to get out onto the field. Yeah. I, I mean, that that's literal, no, you know, know, Yeah, when the field is flooded. So um, those are things I don't and those are things I don't have to ask other people about it. I've been through it. So it's very easy to write a column like that. So let's talk about Junior since you brought him up and how you guys became as close as you did. Um. You know, I, I'll never forget the first time I met Junior. Uh, you know, of course, I knew of him. I came to San Diego in 89. He got drafted in 90. I was covering high school, so I was never around the Chargers. And in 95, I believe it was, they asked me to be the backup on the Chargers beat. <clears throat> and so... Who was the lead? Uh, Kevin Kernan was. And so, I, you know, said, okay. I, You know, I, it took a minute because I had been... Um, doing some other things that I enjoyed, you know, writing about hockey and writing about the NBA. 
So I said, okay. And I remember in the off season, I wanted to go introduce myself to guys. And I walked into the locker room. This is when they, they trained out at Qualcomm and their locker room was off season locker room was at Qualcomm. And I walked in and there were only two guys in the locker room and it was junior and someone else. And they were both walking on the other side of the room towards the training room. And I remember he turned back and looked and he saw me and he stopped and um, I was walking towards him. He says, Oh, you're the new guy. And, um, and he said, you know, I'm junior say, I'm, I'm like, I know who you are, <laughs> you know? And he just was, you know, he couldn't have been more kind. And, and, um, we talked for a minute and he said, if you ever need anything, you call me and gave me his number. And, and I'm, you know, it's my first day. I've never covered a, a, um, a pro beat like that you know on a daily basis and i'm like this can't be it can't be the way it is because i you know you had heard a few stories that junior was kind of a diva at times and so i'm like i'm being set up here or something (laughs) no seriously and so you know i said okay well i'm not going to use this number unless there's something i need and so but at the same time i was curious is you know is this really his number you know or am i being punked (laughs) So like a couple of weeks later, I don't remember what happened, but there was something. So I decided, okay, I'm going to try it. And I'm half expecting Domino's pizza, you know, hey, yeah, welcome to Domino's pizza. And, and it's, it's his voice and his voicemail and, you know, and leave a message and, and he called me back. So that was kind of how it all started. And, um, you know, I always say that I wouldn't be where I am today if not for him, guys like him and Rodney Harrison and others who really taught me about the culture of a locker room and what it takes to cover it and, and to try and see things from an athlete's perspective in the locker room and, you know, how to develop relationships. Uh, because more so than in any other pro sports in the NFL, that divide between the team and the media is so significant that, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, it's hard to break through sometimes. So if you, if you have the, I don't want to say the backing, but the respect of the star players on a team it makes it that much easier. Well, you have to have the trust. For, oh, for I know for me, going through, <clears throat> through college and a little bit in the NFL, it's it's really important that when I'm saying something, I don't want my my words to be chopped up and then thrown however they want it to be put. So, Correct. you know, just having that respect for people, going to the locker room. I mean, we would say stuff to each other in the locker room, which I'm sure you understand, but, I mean, <laughs> that you'll never say to anybody else, Correct. you know, and then, then you have to go and, and – tone it down to PG when you're talking to the media and then they can, you know, put things out of context and it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to create a good relationship, but you know, that's awesome that they were able to say, Hey, here's how you do it. Here's what we need. And, and you listened. Oh, you, you, if you're smart, you do. And, and, uh, you know, like I remember it was early on in my tenure covering the NFL and they had signed Ryan McNeil as a free agent quarterback for a lot of money. And so we're at training camp. And, um, Ryan just looks God awful. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm serious in practice. He just looks God awful. And, you know, the preseason games, I'm like, man, they just paid this guy a lot of money and this guy's going to be a bust and yada. And so I'm like, okay, do I, I need to write something on this. And then I go and I talk to a few of the veterans and they said, you know, you have to understand the, the talented guys in this league, veterans work on their weaknesses in training camp. And preseason. So they're going to look bad so that when they get into a game, they try and turn their weaknesses into strengths. 
And then Ryan went out that year and led the NFL in interceptions. <laughs> oh, wow. And Really? And, oh, yeah, and I've never forgotten that. So whenever I get to training camp and I see a veteran who might be struggling, I will, in the back of my mind, think, okay, is there an issue or is he working on his weaknesses trying to turn them into strengths? And then you can have that conversation with him. But it's just little lessons like that that help you in terms of building relationships with players, understanding the culture, and ultimately developing those relationships. What advice would you have to somebody that's just starting in the game, trying oh, to figure out how to you know, develop those relationships? Listen. You <laughs> Shut knows. the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously, you have to listen. And you have to be willing to acknowledge to, to um, folks that you don't know everything and that you want to learn. I remember the first year I was covering the goals, and I had never been to a hockey game in my life. And it was short of, it was sort of like I drew the short straw because they came to town in the, in the summer. Nobody was around. I'm a high school writer. Hey, go cover this press conference. And I do. And then there's not much excitement for it, at least internally. So it's like, okay, you're going to be the guy who's, who's covering the, the home games, whatever. So I'm like, okay. And I'll never forget. I went to the, to the GM at that time. It was Don Waddell and, um, and even to the coach. And I said, I don't know anything about hockey. I mean, I know the general principles, but I don't know anything about this sport. And can you teach me? And I think that they respected that, that I was not going to sit there, some guy who's never even, not, not only never put on a pair of skates, but never even been to a game and try and judge them on what they do. Um, but I would come to them and ask them, why did you do certain things? And, and it actually turned out to be, you know, the most fun I think I've had in this business covering any sport was really? covering minor league hockey. Wow. But yeah. You know, so. Um, Is that because the learning curve was so high or? Yeah. I, I mean, that's part of it. I, I was learning. But also, I think, again, I think those guys respected that I wasn't trying to tell them how to do their jobs or, or pretending that I knew more than they knew. And um, it was just fun because it was, you know. It, it wasn't one of those things where every little detail is dissected, you know, and people are always on guard about something. You can actually have a conversation with guys. Um, so I enjoyed it. People always think I'm kidding when I say that. But the most fun I've had in this business was actually covering minor league hockey. Wow. That's uh, that's crazy. I mean, and especially for somebody that has gotten to where you are and I know you're very humble and you don't like to, to brag, but I mean, the ultimate sign of respect is when other people, other colleagues respect the work that you do. And I've heard multiple people, I've seen multiple people and no matter where you go, you carry that respect. Well, I appreciate that. Well, I, think, I think too, where, where you're talking about, I mean, for me as an athlete growing up and I've played every single level of sports, um, some of my favorite times were more, more of the innocent, like learning the fundamentals, like the high school times. Like, yeah, I played in the NFL. My favorite time was probably in high school, just mm -hmm. having like fun, like camaraderie, learning, you know, just being kind of vulnerable and open, like, like what you're saying, you're just open to, to learning and, and experiencing something new. So that was probably just really exciting for you to do that. That's uh, no question. Yeah. It was no question. And then it didn't hurt that, that the, I can't remember if this is the last year I was on the beat or not, but the year that they set a pro hockey record for victories. Yeah. And um and what a wild season that was where I think they started out I think they're they didn't lose until I think their twenty sixth game or something like wow. that. And and 
and the rest of the league hated them because they were in, <laughs> no because they were an independent and so right. they were bringing in all of these former NHL guys to go with a few young guys and and the other teams you know who were trying to develop players were like what the hell are you guys doing that's not what this is supposed to be about and and at the end of the year they end up going to Fort Wayne in the IHL finals and got swept 4-0 and you know everyone in the league just flat out loved it but just to to go on that journey with them where, I mean, they're untouchable for a quarter of the season, and then they hit a rough spot where they lose some guys, and then to get to the finals and get swept, it was um, it was a wild journey, but it was just, it was so much fun, man. I can't even begin to tell you. And so after that, you said you, you became the beat writer for the Chargers? After that, I they had me uh, <laughs> do um, the NHL – while still doing high schools, do the NHL at large sort of thing, you know, stuff that was going on up in LA. And then it was sort of the same thing with the NBA. Um, I, I don't remember if I was covering high schools at the same time as doing some NBA stuff, but then it was the chargers as a backup. And then the next year taking over full time as the lead. So what is it like being the beat beat reporter? Um, for me, it was, it was a learning experience, you know, cause it was the first, at least the Chargers, it was the first professional beat I had covered, major professional beat I had covered on a daily basis. I mean, even when I was covering the goals, it wasn't on a daily basis. So when it got to the point I was covering the Chargers and you're responsible for everything that's written about them every day and, and the coverage and everything, it was, um, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting because I, I didn't necessarily have someone I felt I could lean on about that, you know, sort of a mentor while I was there to do it. Jerry McGee was there, but he, you know, he, he wasn't around a lot. He was doing the NFL at large. So it wasn't like every day I could lean on him as much as I respected Jerry. Um, so, you know, your first couple of years, you're just, you're operating almost out of fear. No, seriously, you know, cause you don't want to get beaten on stories. Um, you know, you want to be the voice of the beat because that's what you're there for. And so you stress over every little thing, you know, and if somebody has something you don't, you know, it just it sticks with you for a while, regardless of how many stories you might break. And what year is this? This is 96. So this is pre Twitter, pre social oh, yeah. media, pre all of that. There's got to be a lot of anxiety that goes with oh, that. Oh, without a question. You know, just thinking about what else is going to come out. Because that's all from print, right? Yeah. And and you're you're never off the clock. That's the thing people don't <laughs> realize. You're never off the clock. It's not a nine to five where you say, okay, practice is over. I've written my story. I'm done. Right. Anything could break after you filed. And, and you know, it's just, it's all day. Um, today is just insane it's not just 24 <laughs> 7 it's like every how many seconds are in a day yeah <laughs> um, it, it's it's i can't i can't even imagine being a beat writer today because I, I i marvel at these guys and and these women today because it used to be like i would write two stories a day you'd have a main story and a notebook and now um beat writers have to do those things um they have to update everything on blogs they have to do these video components, digital components. Sometimes they'll do radio. Sometimes, like at ESPN, they'll put you on that. And so those folks are literally um, round the clock. You think and it's easier or harder, though? I think it's harder. And they're getting paid the same money. <laughs> but you think, I mean, 
there's just so many of them where when you were doing it, I mean, it just seemed like it was just your show. Right. Now there's a lot more, right? Yeah. Oh, no question. I mean, the, the popularity in the NFL, you've seen an explosion in, in terms of the credentialed folks who are covering it. And um, that makes it that much harder because, again, it used to be I used to look at I was competing against um, the North County Times or the Associated Press, you know, here in San Diego, not a big market in terms of, of coverage. So um, now it comes from everywhere uh, with social media today. Everybody thinks they're, they're a journalist and you might have a fan who's out at a restaurant and a player's there and something <laughs> happens and they post it. And now you got to react to that. Right. You know? So it, I feel for beat writers today. I truly do. Yeah. And how long did you cover the chargers as a beat writer? Uh, eight years. I always said, um, and they, I, I said, I'm not getting off this beat until they have a winning season. <laughs> I'm serious. So, you know, we go, remember I went through, I went through the one in 15 year Ooh, Ryan Leaf. Uh, yeah. I went through the four and 12. I went through all of that. And every year, you know, it was either, it was a non-winning season. I think the best was eight and eight. And I said, finally, I started 96 and I, I said, uh, I said, I'm not leaving until they have a winning season. And finally in 04, they had a winning season and went to the playoffs. And the next year, I think it was the next year I got off the beat. So, um, and then went to do the NFL at large, but that was my whole thing. I, I've got to prove to myself. It's not me. I'm not the reason <laughs> they, haven't, they haven't had a winning season. And why did you make that step up to SI? Was that a natural progression of things or is that what did they come, come after you? No. Well, what happened? Um, it's funny, this industry, uh, the way it works. So I had been covering the chargers for X number of years and I'd been getting, you know, really good performance reviews and you're going around the country and you start hearing what some of your colleagues make. And I remember I went to, um, after one review, I said to, it, it was with the sports editor and then the person above him. And, and I said, Hey, you know, how do I get paid? Like other folks who are doing the same beat around the country. And they're like, Oh, well, what do they make? And, and so I said, well, they make this. And, you know, it's kind of like, Oh, how, how much was that? Man. I want to say at that time I said it was like 75. Mm -hmm. a year or something like that and um and they were like "Ooh, you know like <laughs> this is the uh, union tribune right? yeah we can't we, we're, we're guild <laughs> we have a scale and i'm like and i said so what you're telling me is the only way i could get paid comparable to what colleagues around the country make is if if i get an offer from someplace else and of course they you know try and say no that's not true or whatnot but you know by pure coincidence Within a month, I remember I got a call from um, the Star Ledger in New Jersey. And so I'm going to give all these figures and, you know, probably shouldn't, but what the heck. <laughs> so, so it's I go behind out, the smoke. It's yeah, fine. You know, it's so I go good. out and I interview with, um, I tell them, hey, I got a uh, um, Star Ledger wants me to come out and interview to be um, their NFL writer. So like, okay. And, and I'm really not interested at that point in moving to New Jersey, but I'm like, Hey, I got to play the game now. Cause that's how they've set it up. Totally. So I go out and I interview and, and the sports editor who recently passed away, his name was Chris D'Amico. Great guy. Now I'm expected not to be interested at all. So I get there and, and we have dinner and all of this. And at the end of the night, Chris says, you know, Hey, we want to hire you. And he says, um, he said, what we can do is we can offer you. I know you love San Diego, but we can offer you, I think he said, um, 91 grand 
and we can offer you a bonus, annual bonus, you know, for this amount, yada, yada. I'm like 91. And what's a, bonus. a bon- what's a bonus in journalism based off of? Well, for them, it was more of everybody's different and not everybody does it, but they, you know, they might call it a Christmas bonus. Okay. And let's say it's, you know, an extra five or 10 grand or something, right. you know, it could be anything. So I'm like, holy crap. I'm like, here I was asking for like 75 and now this guy's offering <laughs> yeah. me like, you know, 90. And so, um, so I, I remember I called up the sports center and I said, Hey, I said, you know, these guys have offered me the job. And he's like, you mind if I ask what they're offering you? And I, I said, yeah, he's offering me 91 plus bonus. And there was like this silence. <laughs> and, and he goes, uh, I'll never forget. He goes, I'm not surprised they offered you. He goes, I just didn't know it would be that much. And I said, I said, did you guys think I was lying to you when I, you know, when I told you what folks were making? Uh, And so then they came back, I think, and they said, well, what if we offered you like, I'm just pulling a number out here. I think maybe 80. And I said, I'll stay. I said, I never wanted to go in the first place. So that's how I got my raise. Nice. And, th- and then, like, a year later, the Boston Globe calls, and I'm like, well, <laughs> okay. So I'm like, you got to listen to them. So Round two. Yeah. I go out yeah. and I listen to them, and they were like, um, they were like, we, uh, we want to hire you to cover the Patriots. And they were like, we'll pay you like 112 grand a year. I'm like, 112 grand? I'm like, where? I didn't know guys <laughs> yeah. were getting paid like that. <laughs> I'm like, you do some TV and this. And so I, I call like, I'll do whatever you want. I, you know, <laughs> for 112. I'm like, honey, we're moving. <laughs> and, um, and so I came back, and and, uh, and this time I didn't meet with the sports editor. They had me actually meet with the editor of the paper. And, and she's like, you know, I've always been a fan of yours, and I've, you know, even taking bullets from you when, you know, John Butler and others tried to get you pulled off the beat and, and all these things. And I'm like, okay. And, and, um, and then she's like, we don't want you to go. And what if we were to offer you a hundred, you know, and I'm looking at her like, you can do that. I'm like, a couple of years ago, I was trying to get 75 and you guys couldn't give me that. What happened? So long story short, that ended up happening and I stayed and, um, and then, what a year after that or so sports illustrated a couple of guys moved on so i knew they had openings and for anyone who's in the sports journalism profession like at that time growing up sports illustrated was it yeah so i just said you know i i i just want to throw my name in the in the hat you know and did you have an agent at this time no no i've never had an agent um and well it up until after I got to ESPN, but I threw my name in the hat. I reached out to someone there. Um, long story short, I ended up getting, um, an interview and then they offered me. And then again, I got called into the editor's office and <laughs> she was like, um, there's probably nothing we can do at this. Point. <laughs> like, we said, don't sell enough papers to, no, to, to make that happen. No, I said, no, I said, you know, I appreciate everything you've done. And I did. She was, she was great for me, but I'm like, I'm, this is something I got to try. You know, I at least have to do for however long um, and see what it's all about. And so I ended up at that point, moving on to, to sports illustrated. The great part was, you know, I didn't have to move. Um, so the only thing that changed for me was the masthead, um, and not, you know, anything else, which was great. I think that's one of the, the great things about 
the world we live in is <clears throat> mm-hmm. that you can work for companies like Sports Illustrated and ESPN and not have to leave oh, a yeah. place like San Diego. Yeah, the older I've gotten, because I, I, I know there are certain jobs I wouldn't move for. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't care. Like, even at, at Sports Illustrated, you know, they'd have to let me write my own check to get me to move to Bristol. Yeah. And they pretty much know that. Um, so you get to a certain age where you say, you know, quality of life and, and those things are, are as important or more important than, than, you know, um, the name of the company. Sure. And when you're young, you're always chasing that, whatever it is, that carrot. Um, and then you get to a certain point where you realize that it's not so much about money and all these other things. It's about, like I said, quality of life and the enjoyment of what you're doing and all those sorts of things. When you find that happy balance, it's really hard to to give it up. For it, no matter what, however how much money. Exactly. Sean and I talk about it too. It's could I make more money doing what I do? And yeah, I, I could. And I could push the envelope a little bit more. Um, but is it important for me to have time with my kids and and do those things? Um, yeah, that, that's important. And maybe I I do lose some money sometimes. Um, I'm very fortunate. I have a very lovely wife who who does a lot. But I mean. Man, in the mornings, taking them to school, the the rides mm. to school that I make sure I take them to school every morning, it's fun. We sing stupid songs, we you know mm. joke around. It's like that's time with dad. That you know, could I come in at four in the morning and probably get a lot of stuff done and wouldn't be up to my neck in, in paperwork? Sure, um, but it's not worth it to me. Exactly. So I just uh, you know kind of delegate and push it to other people, and it's uh it's important just to find that happy place There's no doubt about it if i if i if my children were weren't grown and they were young let's say elementary school whatever now i don't think i could do this espn job because yeah. i'm traveling more now than i have at any point in my career and i don't think i would have made that trade-off i'd like to think i would not have made that trade-off so sure um it's, it's just interesting how things in my career have worked out um you know a lot of times i feel like i have a guardian angel who looks out for me. Um, even when I got let go at SI, you know, and they told me, uh, I'll never forget, because I was in New York for the Super Bowl, and we had been having layoffs, and they had just put out another email saying that there was another round coming, and my boss, <clears throat> my immediate boss at that time told me he didn't think it applied to me, and I'm like, okay, so I go about my business, and, you know, a month, month and a half later, I get the call saying, you know, we got to let you go. It's not a performance issue. It's were trying to be as lean as possible because they wanted to take the magazine public and they were going to have an IPO. And, um, um, I, you know, for a moment there, it's the first time I've ever been laid off. Uh, you know, you wonder what's next and now you got a family and all of that. And, you know, within a few hours I knew I was fine because I had had a few places reach out to me. So I, it, it wasn't a big concern, but, um, that's gotta feel good. It did. It did. Uh, it did. But at the same time, I'll, I'll say this too. It felt, um, I don't want to say I felt guilty, but I felt bad for friends who were in the same situation, who weren't as fortunate mm-hmm. and you're like, and who are really good. And, um, I just, it just, it really opened my eyes up to the business about what's really going on and where it's going and, and, um, how long I would be a part of it. You just don't know because it's no longer about your performance. It's about so many other factors. Sure that have nothing to do with you. And um, will I get to the finish line in this business? I have no idea, you know, the way things are going. I don't know that any of us do. So all you can do 
And all I try and do is two things. One, do the best work that I can. And then two, always have a plan B, you know, or to do what I can to have a plan B in case it doesn't work. Um, or in case, you know, something happens beyond my control. And, and that was the lesson I took from, from Sports Illustrated. Tell, tell us about one of the things that's so fascinating, which I talk about frequently is your time at that table when they came in and they told you about Twitter. At oh, <laughs> yeah, we were, I was in New York and they came in and, and, or they had a meeting. They brought us into a conference room and they told us they wanted us to do Twitter. And at that moment, I looked and like, what, what's Twitter? You know? And, um, it's probably the way I look at Sean. Yeah. <laughs> the way Derek looks at me every day. Yeah. You know? What, what mention? What are you talking about? Yeah. I've been tweeting at you all day. And they, they, uh, they explained it. And at first, my reaction was, man, I'm not interested in this. You know, <laughs> I, I'm just not. And then, and then my reaction was knowing what the climate was in the business and whatnot. Hey, you better adjust or, you know, you can be a dinosaur and become extinct or you can adjust and try and keep living. And, and so I adjusted and said, I'm going to try and, excuse me, use it to my advantage. And that time I was naive and said, this will be an opportunity to engage with fans, um, all those sorts of things. Not even knowing what a <laughs> troll was. I did. I had no idea what a They're troll was. Yeah, you know, and so I'm we, like, I saw you engage, engaging with some trolls yesterday. <laughs> uh, she wasn't a troll. She was, you know, and I, and I got her point. I, you know. But she just kept on going after it. Well, you know, she wanted to make a point, I guess, because and, and again, and I and I was sincere when I said my condolences to her. She had lost a son to she said CTE, which I don't know if that's true or that's not in terms of him passing from CTE. But um what I didn't like was when I initially put out the tweet that an interesting stat I had I had learned yesterday from the NFL that that of all of the concussion evaluations this year that have taken place I think it was 37% were from self-evaluation and, you know, um, which was up from the previous year where it was 22%. And so she bounced back at me about um, its brain injuries, you know, not concussions, which I'm like, okay. And then she had some other thing about um, the media. Yeah. Quote unquote, the media always siding with uh, sports teams or with sports. And I'm like, obviously, you don't know who I am because I get in more trouble from the league for <laughs> going after the league on these issues. So I, I kind of resented her putting us all in one pack, one one box. And um, so it just went back and forth a little bit. And then finally, I just, you know, um, I, I told her I just didn't think it was right that she says that that um, essentially only mothers who have lost children can can live this pain and. Like I have a friend who died in part from CTE, and right. and so then she gave me the stupid analogy that that's like saying that you have you're a white person, you have friends who are black, that makes you racist. And I, and I just told her that's the dumbest thing I've heard on Twitter today. <laughs> and I guess she didn't like it, so um, she said something else. And finally, I just told her, you know, my condolences for your loss, but it's still your logic is still ridiculous and. I'll give you the last word as I move out. Yeah. So she told me to get the fuck out of here. So. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about the fact. I mean, just the fact that self-reporting is up. I mean, somebody see that's- and that, but, but, but that's it. See, she took that. I think she, and if I could get in her head, which might be a dangerous place, <laughs> but I think what she took that to mean was that, that um, I was buying into the belief that 
It's on players to report their condition. And I said to her, even in the tweet, that no, it's not It's not just about players reporting it. The league has people who are looking out for it. They have an independent observer up above. They had independent neurologists on the sideline. They are looking out for the players, too. The point I was making is that it's great, and I was hoping people would take, it's great that players are now becoming more educated about their health and are taking um, accountability for it. Sure. That they are stepping up because the culture had always been, and Derek would know this, the culture had always been, you don't come out of a game. Absolutely. You know? Well, I was yeah. just going to jump in and say that. I mean, it, it's you push through everything. Exactly. Like, how many fingers do I have up? Like, coach, hit me how many times, how many fingers? Because I don't know. Oh, yeah. three? Perfect. You're good. Go back in. I mean, I played, I have eight documented concussions. So I probably had 20 concussions yeah. that I just worked through. And, and, and those documented weren't self documented. Those no. were like, no, they, they, ripped, you, a, they ripped you the fuck out of the game. Yeah. Hid yeah. my helmet and yeah. <laughs> I was throwing up and you know, yeah. all those, all those signs. Um, but yeah, you were taught to, you just push through it. Like be tough, get back in there. You exactly. got, you got your bell rung. Exactly. That's what, what it was. You, you got, got a your, dinger. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, okay, here I go. I'm going right back in. It is awesome to see that people are taking it serious yeah. because I mean, is it a serious thing? Absolutely. Does a game itself suck a little more because we're we're taking a little bit more precaution absolutely it's not but you have to do that what, what's more important this game or are these guys playing it absolutely and, i mean it's it's a it's it sucks i get it and people are like oh man they're, they're they're not letting them play football well fuck i mean you can't you can't say yeah go ahead just keep leading through your head when we know we're having these issues it's not it's not safe and i'm I'm proud to see that it is coming to the forefront and people are stepping up saying hey no i probably shouldn't go back in right yeah, now but I'm, I'm good with not going back in somebody told me x number of years ago the self-reporting was only seven percent really yeah so we've gone from seven you know to 37 in a handful of years i think it's tremendous and you know to speak to the game changing i'll never forget this my last conversation with junior um which was three months before he died we, we, we were talking about the whole <clears throat> bounty gate situation. And then as just an aside, before we got off the phone, I said to him, what do you think of what Goodell is doing to the game? People say he's making the game soft. And I'll never forget this now, because in hindsight, it, it really unnerved me a little bit. And he said he has to do it. I said, what do you mean he has to do it? And he said, if he doesn't do it, he said, we're going to have more fathers waking up in the morning who don't remember their own name and who don't remember their kids' names and who can't function. He goes, so it has to be done. And and at the time, I just kind of like wrote it off like, yeah, okay, okay. And then after his death, I was like, oh, man, he was talking wow. about himself, yeah. yeah, you know? And I had no idea. And when you go through the book and you see, yeah, he was. He was talking about himself. So... So I'm one of those people who say, yeah, the game has changed and I don't like it necessarily, but I understand why it's happening. And so for me to see that 37% of players are reporting what they believe to be concussions or as this woman would say, brain injuries, um, I think it's, I think it's outstanding. And I hope that number continues to climb, not because I want the onus put on the player, but because players are becoming educated about their health and taking accountability for it. And when they're having symptoms, it's okay to hang it up. 
You, you yeah. see some of these guys have an early retirement yep. and they're like, dude, that, are you fucking serious? He's in his prime. It's like, no, guys, you don't yep. know what it's like to wake up in yeah. the morning. Like Junior said, not knowing. Like, like, oh, like you're in a fog. Like, hey, I'm fucking hungover, but I didn't drink anything. I didn't have any alcohol yeah. last night, nothing, but I just feel like I'm out of it. Yeah. And I mean, after a game, when you're concussed like that, it's, it's no joke. No. And, and you're, you just feel like, man. And then you could start to come and figure it out. Then it's like, okay, let's go do it again. But people are being self-aware. They're understanding this. What does the NFL stand for, right? Not for long. Right. Like everyone says, it's only going to be a few years of your life. Um, you can cut it, cut it, and then you have the rest of your life to do stuff. So yeah. don't don't fret about just I mean, taking a year or two off the NFL. Do it. No, I, I, Take I care of yourself. I think it's outstanding when 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 they is this a trend? Guys are leaving the league earlier and whatnot. I was like, no, it's not a trend necessarily. And there will always be a talent pool to pull from. But I said, I also think it's outstanding that guys can say now, you know what? Um, something's more important than this game. Sure. I, I think that's great. You know, sure. and I don't, I don't think it means the end of the NFL again, because there will always be a talent pool available. But I just think it's awesome that these guys say there are things that are more important to me than playing football. I think it puts it in perspective too when you have kids. Oh, you absolutely. know, a lot of, sure. you know, my mindset now compared to what it was. You know, five years ago, it was just sure. completely different. You know, I would have worked through fucking anything. Or now it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I got to make sure I'm around for my kids. Mm-hmm. I, gotta, I can't, I can't run through this brick wall. I can't, you know, maybe there's a way around it. <laughs> Can I go around this brick wall or, or jump over it instead of having mm-hmm. to run through it all the time? Um, yeah. So I think it's just important for, for people just to be self-aware, the football players to understand that it's, there's life after football. And that's what I, I tell people all the time. Like when I, when it's all said and done and, and I, I'm not here anymore. I hope that people talk about me and don't ever mention football yep. because life's so much more than, than football. I don't want everyone to say he was an all American. He was this like, nope, I don't want any of that being said. Hopefully I can do my job and, and do more for the community where people are like, Oh no, he was a good guy. He gave, you know, back to the community he helped. And they, and football is not even a mention. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I think for you to cover junior and to write the book that you did, can you talk about the challenges of dealing with something as controversial as CTE, as controversial as alcoholism, uh, drug addiction, uh, somebody that was your friend, that you had to go and get resources through family members that you know, you're know you putting out a portrayal of this man's life and this man's life of what he meant to San Diego as well. Because you know, just as Derek said, he was so much more than football. I mean, yeah. what he did for the community, what he did with his foundation, what he continues to do. Um, the hardest part of the book was, um, was not dealing with those issues with CT or alcoholism or depression or any of that. It was more of trying to be sensitive to the family and more, more specifically as children, knowing that they're going to read this book and they have a certain image of their father. And, um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I wasn't going to lie about anything in terms of who he was or what he did that, that sort sort of thing. But there were certain things that I felt I didn't need to include in the book. One, because they didn't know about it and it wasn't necessarily going to, um, <laughs> it would have been clickbait for lack of a better word. Sure. And I just didn't feel comfortable doing that. So I could tell, I could tell the public what his issues were and give a few stories, that sort of thing without going into every seedy detail that might have happened late in his life. And. You know, and I've always said to people, that makes me a bad journalist, so be it. But it means I can sleep at night, so I'm good with it. And if his kids ever want to dig deeper, 
you're not going anywhere. I mean, they can come talk to you. I've always said that too. It's like, Hey, there's some things that are just better left unsaid. Um, but if you ever really want to dig into it and you want, I mean, I had one of my best friends pass away and there's some dark stories about him and you know, it was with his mom. And I'm like, if you ever want to know, I mean, I'll, I'll talk to you about whatever you want, but some things are just better left unsaid. Yeah. Uh, that's how I felt and that's how I treated it. Um, you know, I, I, my hope was that, uh, the book would, would, <clears throat> it could be a roadmap for some players who think that, that, um, they have to be, you know, um, more myth than man, that they can't be human. And my thing was, you know, if there was one thing I wanted athletes to take away from the book is that if you're hurting, it's okay to ask for help. Right. You know, that it's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength because so often athletes are told any sign of vulnerability or any sign of weakness, um, is going to hurt you in your career. Yep. And, you know, and junior was that way. It was a guy that when he was injured or whatever, he wouldn't go in the training room. He would have the trainers come to him at training yeah, camp he at his dorm. In. No, he, he would do it privately. Yeah. He was that way. Or he would go in so early before anyone else got there. He'd have the trainer meet him there. But whether that was because, because he felt it was important to, to portray that certain image. I don't know. Um, whether or not he didn't want to be seen as, as less than a myth. Um, I don't know, but that's the way he handled it. He, he rarely, if ever would get treated in the training room when anyone was around. Yeah. I think one of the things that I'll always remember, I was fortunate to become friends with Lou Bush who played with junior and mm -hmm. he attributes all of his success in the NFL to the time that he spent with junior where junior sat him down and said, Hey, listen, you know, I know you're a young buck and you want to be, you know, the, you, you want to, you want to make it, make a name for yourself in this league, but you got to work. You got to put that the, was the fucking work him. in. He did it. It didn't matter if you were the, the, the first man or the 53rd man on the roster. If you were willing to work and you wanted to learn, he was there for you. And, and he would do things like when he did the breakfast club, he started the breakfast club, um, the year that, what year would that have been? It would have been 90. Oh, I want to say 98, but I might be wrong. But um, it was after Kevin Gilbride got fired and G June Jones took over. And, and the Chargers had always had their practices in the morning. Well, June Jones wanted to have them in the afternoon. So Junior and the guys started with, you know, what they call the breakfast club, where you would come in, you would work out um, before the day even started. And... Um, he didn't go around and invite you. You know, it was like, okay, if you are serious about this, you'll show up. Right. Yeah. And the guys who showed up, he gave them everything he had. But if you didn't show up, it told him what you were about and he wasn't going to waste much time on you. But he will, he, you can go back to Orlando Ruff, an undrafted rookie out of Furman and linebacker comes in and, and you know how difficult it is for undrafted guys to make totally. a team. And Junior saw how he worked, how serious he was. He took him under his wing. And Orlando will tell you today, he played in the league as long as he did because of Junior. Rodney Harrison will tell you the same thing. He learned how to be a pro from Junior. Um, the man, the man was just so giving. That's why it was so, so disappointing, you know, his death where he didn't reach out to anyone, yeah. you know, for help. Um, because I can tell you, Anyone who knew him would have dropped everything sure. and given what they had to try and help him. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the toughest things is 
like we said, the CTE on top of everything else sure. and, you know, alcoholism, sure. you know, me personally dealing with my alcoholism and, you know, being sober to this day, four and a half years, you know, coming up on five years, it's, it's changed my life. And, you know, I was living at a time where I was trying to run my business and still drink and still do the things that I did. And just removing that one factor really changed me forever, you mm-hmm. know, and it wouldn't have, it would, I wouldn't be here with you podcasting, talking to Derek. And I, I'm convinced of that. And that, that was just alcoholism. And then that was my struggle with alcoholism. And, and it's, it's rampant throughout the league. I mean, Derek knows, I mean, going to college and even for people that didn't play D1 football, I mean, I went to Boulder and we were a drinking school. I mean, that we were number, we, we celebrated the fact that we were voted number one drinking school. Oh yeah. I mean, that we, was a badge we, of honor. You know, some natty, some natty light. <laughs> we, we would put them down, you know, as at K state, we, we, we partied hard. It's, and it's, I mean, with the the opiates now and all the the pills, I mean that's did he, we would call them cocktails. Yeah, we would be like, you know, you go. We had a, a trainer, and you know, he was. You'd always say, Derek, you're probably the toughest guy I've ever been a trainer for, um, but it's going to catch up to you someday, you know, because I'll, I'll play through anything. I didn't broke my arm, uh, plates, screws, everything. The next week against Missouri, I'm out there playing with the club on my arm, you know, mm-hmm. with a nerve block, <clears throat> and. Um, but it was it was those things where it was like cocktails. What cocktail? What are you going to give me? What in the five different pills? And you're taking them, and, and mm-hmm. you feel feel great. And you're getting a shot before the game. And I mean, to be honest, it's not one shot. We're getting multiple shots, mm-hmm. and just getting out there to to do it. Um, you can see how people can become addicted to that and be dependent on it. Me, fortunately, I was able to kind of back away from that and like i don't even like taking tylenol now mm-hmm. like, just because I, I know i knew what it was and you know then you kind of like you know i was kind of used like they were just like using me my coach is like we're just fucking using me to put because they knew i was going to do it just give me whatever i can to to get me out there because they it's money for them sure, they, they have to sure. win and you know but if there's ever anyone out there that's that's dealing with it, you know, you, you got to talk to somebody. It's it's important to to communicate. And one of my best friends, you know, I'm a good friend, not not this Corey, but my other friend Corey, um, he deals with alcoholism as well, and he just got back on on the wagon, got back, uh, started going to his meetings again. And it's you just have to communicate. You have to be vulnerable. You have to. It's it's a it's a disease i think that's that's one of the powerful things is when you share junior's story and it's exactly what you said it's you're not you're not doing it me knowing who you are you're not doing it to sell five million books you know and to retire and play golf in Kauai. you know i know you'd love to do that (laughs) (laughs) but exactly what you said it's it's the context and it's really revealing the story and letting other players know that it's okay and there's so much we live in a world where you have to be strong and you have to put this best foot forward but really you know people have struggles that they deal with you know, no doubt. Eddie, Eddie George told me this story um, for guys who have long, productive careers. And he said he said he learned to view it this way, that when you come into the NFL, it's a birth. You know, it's the start of a new life. And he said, when you when you're let go, it's a death and that life is over. And he said, the problem is that players don't know how to grieve. They don't go through the grieving process and they don't go ask for help again because you've been taught all your life. Don't show vulnerability. Asking for help is a sign of weakness. 
And so Eddie went through this dark period for a time, not where he thought about suicide, but where things got really bad, whether it was drinking, women, whatever. And finally, he went to counseling and his wife got him to go to counseling. And he said it made all the difference in his life. And he realized that he was he wasn't playing football for himself. He had always been playing it for his father because his father loved the game and whatnot. And Eddie realized that his passion was in other places. And that's why you see him now in the theater and acting and doing these things. So he said that's the thing that in his mind, players, something they have to learn to deal with is to say that you're going to go through a grieving process when you're out of the game. The question is, how do you deal with it? And so many players are afraid to say, I need help. I can't deal with it. You know who taught me about that? Junior Seau. Mm. When I talked to him about it and he was, you know, you know, I, he might not have taken his own advice, but he was just saying there's people are always searching for that high. You're not going to get that running out of the tunnel, 60, 70,000 people cheering. You make a, a nice play. Everyone's cheering for you. You're never going to achieve that high, but that's okay. It's okay to not have that anymore. And how do you deal with that? Like you're saying, Eddie George had to go to counseling. It's just, it's hard. It's extremely hard because you're, for so long, you're like, I always say, I don't want to be known as a football player, but that's who you are. Sure. I mean, I, my whole life was like that. And that's why, you know, Sean, people might not understand sometimes. I don't like to like engage too much in football anymore just because I gave so much to it. It's kind of liberating to kind of like, let it go, mm-hmm. you know, and just not, not be a part of that anymore. But that's part of my grieving. Mm-hmm, that's part sure. of how I deal with it. And, uh, people need to like what you're saying, just be open. Yeah. It's okay. It's part of the process. It sucks. Mm-hmm. You know, part hang of those clean cleats up, you know, hanging my cleats up when I got, they're like, okay, we're going to send you to NFL Europe. And I said, I, I don't deserve to go there. I'm not going to go there. I'll wait, you know, for next season, I'll get picked up and go play again. Well, I'm still fucking waiting. No, no one's ever fucking called. You know what I mean? But it's like to have to come to grips with you, like, man. And then and now I'm thinking, like, why the fuck didn't I go travel Europe in a beautiful place and go right. to experience shit? But my ego got in the way. But it's being able to, okay, that chapter's closed. Now it's time to move on. Those are, those are hard things to swallow sometimes. Oh, it's extremely difficult. I mean, Orlando Ruff tells a story in the book where, um, so he gets out of football and, you know, he's ready to, to the second phase of his life and he thinks he's prepared and everything else. And, and he tries to start a business and it fails. And he goes, you know, as an athlete, okay, what are you taught? When you fail, you get back up and you go back at it. So he got back up, he went back at it and the second business failed. And all of a sudden now you start questioning yourself and cause now you're not used to failure. You know, you've always been a success to get to that level. You had to succeed. And then he went through dark, a dark time where, He even says he could have been junior. And it's funny how life works. Sometimes he was he had a workers comp case, you know, involving the NFL. And all of a sudden he's he's waiting on his case and he's asking questions about it. And all of a sudden the light goes off. That's sort of his purpose. So he goes to law school and now he's he you know got his degree and everything. And now he's working for this company. And and that's what he deals with. So um, it's it. If there is a way, and I don't know how you do it, even though every player who comes in the NFL knows it's going to end at some point, it's how do they start preparing for life after football while still playing? Because so many coaches and organizations might say to you, if you're already thinking about that, you've got a foot out the door and we're looking to replace you. Whereas others would say, no, that's smart if we really care about the individual as opposed to the player. 
So there's that fine line there that somehow has to be addressed. And I know some organizations are better than others in terms of addressing it. But then you have coaches, as you were saying earlier, who know that their job depends on winning. Sure. And so they want that guy who oftentimes who's just going to blindly do whatever it takes to try and win. So as, as tragic as the junior sales loss was to you and to all of the football world, um, talk about what it meant to you to be in the room for his induction into the hall of fame for the vote and for kind of presenting him. Um, <laughs> it was funny. I, I didn't have to present him long. I, I basically remember cause that room, the day in that room gets really long. I mean, we started like what? Seven. How many, ri- how many writers? It's now up to 48 voters, 48 voters, including two. So they're not uh, all writers Two all the famers. No, they're not all writers. There's some are TV, some are radio or media members. Um, and now we added two Hall of Famers in the room. And I don't know if they're going to rotate the Hall of Famers or not. I don't so know. they're part of the voters now? Last year, yeah. It was um, Dan Fouts and James Lofton last year. So um, when Junior came up, it, it had been sort of a long day already. And then I, I kind of said, look, um, I said, I, I respect all of your knowledge about these candidates. And I said, so I don't want to insult it. Um and give you a bunch of information on junior. I said, we all know he played 20 years. He went to the pro bowl 12 times. He was considered one of the greatest at his position. And I said, really, I don't know that I need to say any more than that. I said, if I do, I'm happy to answer any questions. And then just left it at that. And there may have been a few people who wanted to speak on his behalf as well. Um, but look, junior was going to get into the, to the hall with or without me. So, um, I just wish he had been here to see it himself because it's something that he wanted. No, I agree. That's uh, that would have been great. I know, I know it meant a lot to him too, and it's unfortunate. Um, but it was you know, good to see his kids out there and his mom. And you know, you hear some of the stories about how how they did and how excited they were and how emotional it was. Uh, it's part of grieving, part of part of the process for them. I mean, I'm, it's it's a uh, it's a big loss, man. It's, it's still, I mean, to this day, you know, he meant a lot to me too. And it's a big, big loss for, for everyone that was involved in the community and that knew him personally. It was a tough one. No, I get it all the time. John Lynch and I were talking not too long ago and he just said, man, you know, just out of the blue, I miss him. I miss buddy. Right. You know, that's what I'm a buddy. And that's how every, that's how everyone who knew him feels about him. You sure. Know? Um, a tremendous loss. Yeah, I mean, just hearing, you know, the Dave and Jeff podcast, you know, he brings on C.S. Keys and C.S. Keys had such a, you know, close Mm -hmm. friendship with Junior and to hear him tell those stories, it's, I mean, it it, it brings chills to your mind, you know, because you know how much, you know, that friendship meant to them and it's not just them, but, you know, for me, just being a fan of the Chargers and just seeing it from afar and, you know, seeing the impact that he had, you know, someone that had a restaurant I mean, the, that restaurant was huge. I mean, that restaurant was enormous restaurant, you know, in Mission Valley. And it became a center for him to host his foundation, you know, yeah. the golf, the charity tournaments for him to host fight night for him to, you know, have a place. And, you know, the way he treated that restaurant is the way that my grandfather's treated our restaurant, you know, and it's if you're not in junior was so hospitable. I mean, that that's all the stories you hear to all the people that he impacted their lives is he was always welcoming and he, he made everyone feel important. No doubt. Well, the fun, the, the, the most interesting, one of the more interesting stories in the book that, that 
um, I found was I was talking to Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, and so they had played here in San Diego, and, and Mark was going to drive over to Palm Springs the next day. But that night he wanted to see the game that was on Sunday Night Football. So he, someone told him to go down to Junior's to watch the games. And he walks in, and there's Junior at the front desk working. And, <laughs> and so they had never sort of formally met. And Mark told him, you know, if, if I remember the story right, Mark told him, you know, I've always hated your ass. <laughs> you know, he said, because you, you know, you always beat the Raiders or made it tough on them. And Junior gives him the big old hug and buddy, and they go up to his office upstairs. And for like two hours, they're there and they don't talk football. That's the thing Mark told me. They never talk football, they just talk life. And the next year, Mark came back, he went there again. And he goes, that's kind of how their relationship was. And, and again, that was Junior, you know. Whether you were meeting him for the first time or the hundredth time, he always made you feel special. Sure. So. so one of the coolest things that I've seen recently is seeing somebody that I now consider such a close friend being in Jerry's helicopter. Ah. So let's not play around and let's get let's get to the let's get to the meat and potatoes of how uh, Jim Trotter goes from covering the gulls as a beat writer all the way to uh, getting in that helicopter. I mean, I'm guessing not too many people get that um, that ticket. Look, Jerry's a smart man. You know, he, he knows how to butter folks up. He knows that he's having a big profile done on him, so he's going to roll out the red carpet. I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding myself here. Um, but no, it was we were doing we were doing a piece on Jerry prior to the Hall of Fame induction because he's one of the more charismatic figures in the NFL. Whether you like him or hate him, um, He's, he's a guy that everybody knows and he, he sparks some sort of response. And so part of the thing, we just spent time over the off season visiting with him. Um, we went that day we were in the helicopter because we had left practice and he was going to see his grandson play in a, in a summer passing league game. And if you know, in Dallas around rush hour, the traffic can get really bad. So. You know, for folks who live, for folks who live at that other end of the, of the financial spectrum for me, um, Jerry takes from Frisco to Dallas, it would have taken us a good 45 minutes to an hour. We jump in the helicopter. It's a 10 minute ride, you know, and, um, so we go and we, where's watch. the passing league game? It's at it uh, one of the high schools. Yeah. Is there at, a pad, a, a pad for the chopper to land? No, no. He, he lands at a field. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how far away. And then the car is there waiting for him. And, uh, you know, the driver takes us to, to the game and we watch the game. And then, you know, he leaves and gets back in the, uh, or actually his home is, is not far from the high school. So, um, but if he wanted to, he could get back in the copter and go back out to Frisco, but there wasn't a need, but that's how the other half lives, man. Well, so, I mean, one of the most fascinating things about that story is something that's very applicable to us behind the smoke barbecue war stories is you guys where he helicopters too. (laughs) I'd love to have a helicopter to get to Del Mar. That would be great. Um, no, but is, is how he started. And kind of Jerry's dad and yeah. started in the grocery business. If you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, the bow tie Jerry and Yeah, you know, Jerry Jerry's father was um he and his mother were entrepreneurs and Jerry was actually born in Los Angeles. A lot of people don't know. He lived there until he was about five. And then the family moved to Arkansas. But the family owned his his mom and dad owned a grocery store and the family lived above the store. And his dad and his mom, particularly his dad, were known as ultimate salespeople. 
And so when Jerry was young, nine, 10, whatever, his mom would dress him up um, in his Sunday best and sometimes put the bow tie on and Jerry would stand out front and welcome the customers coming in. <laughs> and then if his mom saw, for instance, a, um, a woman who needed help and the thinking being too, she would tip, you know, young Jerry for helping, <laughs> she'd kind of give Jerry a wink and he would go over and help this woman and, and typically get some sort of, um, tip. But like the dad would have, um, you know, a, a DJ, so to speak, in the middle of the store with music and on certain days to bring people in, not just for buying groceries, but to get them in there to hear music or whatever. He was just, he was, in fact, he later went on to sell insurance and there was a sort of um, program and he was known as the remarkable Mr. Jones, I believe it was. <laughs> and Jerry's the same way. They understand, his parents understood and he understands that business is about relationships. And so more than anything, what you're going to get from Jerry is he is going to try and connect with you on a one-on-one. -on -one. He may be full of shit, <laughs> but he is going to try and connect with you because he feels that's the way to get things done as opposed to, you know, um, and I know this sounds silly now, especially with him feuding with Roger Goodell, but as opposed to being a hardliner on one side, he's mm -hmm. going to try and find a way to, to schmooze you and bring you over to his side, whatever it is. Do you think if Jerry Jones was the owner of the Chargers that we would have gotten the stadium built here? Yes. Without a doubt. Yeah. No question. Yeah. No question. You know, he's not. He's not. He's no, not. He's not. So there we are in L.A. No, I mean, one, as you know, the stadium situation here came down to one thing, and it was a lack of trust on both sides. And, and we can go through all the reasons. I'm sure they've been gone through forever. But it came down essentially to a lack of trust on both sides to get a deal done. With someone like Jerry, I believe he would not have let it get to that point, and he would have found a way the right people um, to schmooze to whatever to somehow make it happen. So let's talk. A and little you know, he almost, he was, he was a candidate to buy the chargers back in the day. <laughs> I did see that. Yeah, I did see that. How things would be different. It'd be, it would have been interesting. It would have been interesting for sure. So what, uh, what, what does Jim have on the, on the docket? What, what's he working on with what's keeping you, uh, what oh. keeps the fire burning in your belly? Uh, just trying to tell good stories. Uh, we've got one on cream hunt we're working on now. Nice. Um, also focusing on, you know, all the social justice issue with the players. I think you're going to hear something in the next week or so about that. Um, and that's it, you know, going to games, going actually going to the Cowboy game this this weekend. They're playing the Eagles. So uh, just trying to stay somewhat relevant, stay employed. Trying know? to stay employed. <laughs> you know, trying to stay employed. What, uh, what advice do you have to people that are trying to get into uh, sports entertainment business? Um, well, sports entertainment is different from journalism. Sure. So... I don't know that I can speak to sports entertainment. I can speak to sports journalism. One, you better have a thick skin. Um, two, you better be versatile. Three, um, read, write as much as possible and always be willing to listen. You know, um, I, I'm trying to remember what the saying is. Um, how does it go? You, you should always, what is it? You should always 
listen twice as much as you speak, something along those lines, but it just reflecting the importance of, of listening and learning. Um, cause you'll never know everything in this business. And do you think that the world that we're moving towards the sports, you say it's sports journalism is different than sports entertainment. Do you see the blending of those two worlds coming together with all the social media apps that we have, all the demands that, like you said, the beat writers have these days? Sure. The Ian ESPN is for entertainment. There you go. So yeah, the, that line is always being blurred and, um, it's, it's a tough one because for guys like me who grew up a certain way in this business, we view things a certain way and you see it changing all the time. So, um, it's, it's, uh, I look, I could not have imagined we would be in the state we are today with this business. When I came into journalism, there was no internet, there were no <laughs> cell phones, you know, which meant there was no social media, all those sorts of things, you know. People were basically just beginning to, to the transition from typing your stories on on typewriters to, you know, these old computer um, laptop computers. So things are changing so quickly. It, it's the some, Max Macintoshes. Yeah. You know, we called them the Trash 80, TRS 80, <laughs> the Trash 80. But um, I'm fascinated and I'm scared to see where this is all going to go in the next five to ten years. What are you doing to prepare for it? Writing are, books. You, are you on Snapchat? No. <laughs> will no. you Will you get on Snapchat? Is if I'm ESPN going to gonna have that meeting with Jim Trotter? If I'm told to, I will. But, you know, I had to cut back on social media, like, you know, because they're, they're just too many. So I just said, you know, at one point I had Facebook and Twitter and all this other stuff. And finally I dropped Facebook and just said, you know, I'm on Twitter. That's enough. You're on Instagram, too. Well, I'm on Instagram. But Instagram, I, I messed up on Instagram because... Um, Instagram is more personal, you know, with, with whether it's my dog or whatever. And initially when I did it again, not understanding social media, I didn't make it a private page. And so there were a number of people that got on it before it was private. And mm -hmm. then I realized you can make it private and I did. So then the debate in my mind was, do I go through and I just like block all these people that I don't know <laughs> or do I just go forward? So I just said, I'll go forward. And if something comes up, I don't like, then I'll, I'll take some sort of action. So but it's still private. You're not going to public that. No, never, It'll never. never be public. There you go. Never. But you got that behind the scenes access. If you're as lucky as me to follow you and see your, there's see your nothing dog exciting about it. <laughs> you can tell me that you may be behind the scenes, oh, but yeah? there's nothing exciting about it, man. So come on. Now. Um, no, there's nothing. Yeah. You can see it there. There's nothing. There's nothing exciting. Oh, I don't, I don't live don't in exciting bullshit. life. You see it. There's don't nothing don't exciting there. <laughs> What's exciting? My dog at the ocean. That's exciting. That is exciting. You know, Nala, Nala can fetch. Yes, she can. Yes, she can. That's my baby. Yes, yeah. she can. Nala can fetch. Well, uh, Jim, it's it's an honor to call you a friend. It's an honor to have you in the Fight Night crew with Jeff Dotseth and CS Keys and Dave Pellet. I know we don't have our own theme song like CS, but C. Yes. <laughs> maybe one day no, yeah. i love it i'm honored you guys finally had me on it took yeah. long enough man oh we got it you got I thought i'm starting to feel like a stepchild <laughs> you know no we know we we uh 
we watch you, we follow you on Twitter, we see where you are, and we know your demanding schedule, and uh, we're just honored that we could uh, fit you in and get you some tri-tip for lunch. And, I appreciate that. Brother. Yeah, it's been awesome. Uh, be sure to check out his book, um, Life and Death, The Football Icon. Uh, unbelievable access, unbelievable context. Stay tuned um, for Larry Fitzgerald. Very fired up for Larry Fitzgerald. How, when's that coming out? Uh, the fall after he retires, whenever that is. Whenever that is. All right. And then uh, we'll we'll look for the the book with Jerry Jones. <laughs> no, actually, I would love to. There you actually, go. Actually, I really would. You talk about a bestseller. Oh yeah, I'd love to stories. read that. Ooh. I'd love to read that. I would too. Well, thank you, Jim, for your time. Uh, Derek and I are honored to to have you here, and uh, let's go let's go get some slow smoked uh, tri tip. Thanks for having me. Let's do it. All right.